The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Life is full of twists and turns, stress, changes, grief, moments of growth, and moments where we feel like we're taking a few steps back. It's important to show up for yourself through all of the struggles that life can bring. BetterHelp Online Therapy is here for the twists and turns and will assess your needs and can match you with your own licensed professional therapist in less than 48 hours. And for spirituality and health podcast listeners, get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com backslash spirituality health. From Spirituality and Health magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is the Spirituality and Health podcast. Our guest today, Brian McLaren, is an author, speaker, activist, and public theologian. A former college English teacher and pastor, he is a passionate advocate for a new kind of Christianity, and we'll talk about that as the half hour unfolds. He's also a faculty member at The Living School and he podcasts with Learning How to See. We talked to Brian over a year ago when his book Faith After Doubt came out and he is kind enough to come back and talk with us again about his new book, Do I Stay Christian? A Guide for Doubters, the Disappointed, and the Disillusioned. Brian McLaren, welcome back to the Spirituality and Health Podcast. Always good to be with you, Romy. Well, I love talking to you. I won't claim to have read all of your books because I'm not sure that's <laughs> it's true. way too many. There's way too many. Yeah, I have even read my own books. <laughs> you know, I type them up, turn them in, and hopefully they make sense. But the last time we talked, we talked about faith after doubt. And this seemed like a I mean, not just chronologically, but but theologically a sequel. Yes. That you still have faith after doubt, but it's a different kind of faith, like yes. a new kind of Christianity I mentioned a moment ago. So tell us how you got from faith after doubt to do I stay Christian? Sure. Well, first, I appreciate that question because it allows me to give a real quick summary of faith after doubt. And in faith after doubt, I talk about four stages of faith, simplicity, complexity, perplexity, and harmony. And simplicity is uh, dualism and authority figures. It's right, wrong, us, them, in, out, friend, enemy, that sort of thing. And and we trust authority figures to tell us who's on which side of those equations. And then complexity is where we still have that basic core, but we add a little bit of gray area around the edges. And we're focused a lot more on pragmatic issues. And a lot of 
people, and, and really the reason I wrote Do I Stay Christian is because more and more people, Christians, Muslims, Jews, Buddhists, atheists, whatever, are, begin in stages one and two. And then but by the time, at, at younger and younger ages, some, te- some people in their teens, but very often in their 20s and 30s, they move into perplexity and, and harmony, the stages three and four. And what happens to a lot of Christians is when they get permission to move into stages three and four, they find out they don't fit in their church or their denomination, and they wonder if it's even possible for them to stay Christian. And and in my work over the last couple of decades, so many more people, including clergy, are asking that question. And I wanted to write this book to try to be of help. Yeah, I I know a lot of Christians. They're all of... <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, this is too broad a brush in a sense. Bear with me for a second. Yeah. I live in a very Christian part of the United States, very, and also very red. And yes. as I talk to my neighbors, it's almost redundant to say yes. red, conservative, and Christian. I mean, yes. Christianity down here means, you know, right wing conservative. Yes. I, I have, I have neighbors who, Really beautiful, wonderful, kind people who wear shirts and have stickers on their car that say, let's go Brandon, <laughs> you know, yes. which is yes, code yes, for, yes. you know, F.U. Biden. And yeah. it's like, how, what slogan would Jesus wear <laughs> always comes oh to gosh. mind? It was oh that, is that it? How did, and this may not be the way you understand Jesus, but I, but I think it is. How did Jesus the revolutionary become Christ the reactionary. Oh my gosh, that's there's a question for the ages. <laughs> you know, it, I think it can be a characteristic of any organization to betray its founder. And you know, the founder has high ideals and lofty vision and give two or three generations a hand at controlling it and it and those those high ideals are are betrayed. And that certainly seems to me to be the case in the Christian religion. In fact, what I try to do in the first 10 chapters of this book is just try to tell an honest accounting of Christian history, including its atrocities from anti-Semitism to persecution of its own nonconformists to colonialism to patriarchy to to all the rest. And and so it's tragic that it happens. It's it's tragic, but it happens. It, it certainly happens. And it certainly has happened to Christianity. It's, it's certainly in the United States right now. I live in Florida, so I have similar kind of experience. And so you can imagine someone who grows up in one of those t-shirt and a baseball cap wearing families where their Christianity and right-wing politics are totally fused, and they outgrow that, and they see the light on that, so to speak. And then they wonder, what am I going to do with my religious identity? Parallel things right. happen to other religious traditions too, but it's a big deal in America now. And frankly, I think there's a lot at stake for everybody because since Christians are in the in the strong majority here and have the most weapons and wealth, everybody is affected by by how healthy or dysfunctional the Christian community is here. So, so is it just based on what you said? I want to go back to where you where you are in Florida in a second, but the notion of of wealth and I would say weaponry and you yeah. know political clout. Is it power that's the problem? Because if you look at the the kind of Christianity that I experience yeah. most often, 
it, it's it's reflects a certain kind of power structure in the United yeah. States. If you look at Hinduism in Modi's India, it's power that has corrupted yes. the tradition. Judaism, I would say, in in Israel isn't the Judaism that I practice and, and has a, seems to have a whole separate set of moral values yeah. that I don't see in, in Torah or Talmud. But the power structure becomes really the God. I mean, it's a worship of power. It's a worship of, yeah, yeah let's just leave it at that. So it's a yeah. worship of power. So, so is that what we're really witnessing when we look around at the religions in the, in the world? So I wouldn't have said it this way even 10 years ago, but maybe not even six years ago, but here's the way I'd say it now. When I wrote that book, Faith After Doubt, one of the things I was trying to say is that doubt is not the enemy of faith. Doubt is the enemy of authoritarianism. And what I've come to believe is that authoritarianism is this glitch in in human society, and I think there's even a psychological dimension of it. And, and I think what happens is that religion is an incredibly powerful tool in the hands of authoritarians. And I think, I think however authoritarianism works, it seems to go something like this, that when a society reaches a certain level of stress, about 30, 33% of the population, and this, by the way, there's a good bit of social psychology behind all this, about 30 percent of the population are the first to say, we want an authoritarian strong man to come in and solve this pro- these problems that are making us stressed. And I think we're seeing that here in the United States. I think it's happening in Russia, many other countries. And the reasons for the stress are complex. Some of them probably are related to climate change. We know that the way we're living isn't sustainable. I think some of it's related to social media because authoritarians now can create imaginary enemies and create entire conspiracy theories that increase the fear of people, that increases their desire for an authoritarian strongman. And you put all that together with religion, where God is brought in, and I think we're like this massive, a global Petri dish watching an experiment happen of global proportion about our susceptibility to to conspiracy theories and authoritarian authoritarians who exploit them. It's a kind of pandemic in and of itself. In fact, I, I wrote a little short ebook that's called The Second Pandemic, and it's about authoritarianism. Exactly I right. And in, fact, in, in fact, it, you, when you think about it, it works very well because our, our viral biological pandemic spreads by breath, and this one mm-hmm. also spreads by, by words. And it, and it really is a matter of contagion because it spreads from one person to another. So this may seem a little off the ball, but you mentioned Russia. I was wondering if, I mean, you probably wouldn't be allowed to write this book in Russia. Yeah. And you certainly couldn't get it published there. But Russian Orthodox Christianity is a different animal from the Protestant. I mean, there is no, there's no Protestant Pope there's, there's, right, there, right. there's no central authority. There's no Pope in orthodoxy either. But there seems to be, yeah. as, from, what, from what I know about Russian orthodoxy, yes. it, it is incredibly reactionary. It wasn't always, yes. but, but it is yes. incredibly reactionary. And Putin is, is seen, and I think sees himself, as a messianic character, bringing 
back the glory of the one true Christianity, which is Russian yes. Orthodoxy, in the one true messianic land of perpetual innocence, which is Russia. Yes. How, how would you talk to Russian Orthodox Christians in the context of do I stay Christian? Is, the, is it just, you can't, is there a way to have a conversation? Yes. So here's, this is so, so apropos. You know, Eastern Orthodoxy, which would include Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Ukrainian Orthodox, all these different Orthodox commun communities, has remained incredibly united through all these centuries. Catholics broke off, Protestants broke off from Catholics after Catholics had broken off from the Eastern Orthodox, and then Protestants have fragmented in a thousand ways, and Eastern Orthodox have remained incredibly united because it was a very strong patriarchal organization centered in powerful men, powerful old men. And what's happened in the last month, I mean, this is we're watching religious history happen in front of our yeah. eyes, because in the Orthodox Communion, other Orthodox communi communities are saying, we do not want to be affiliated with the Russian patriarch who is supportive of Putin. And numbers of R Russian Orthodox priests are standing up against their own patriarch. So what we see people doing is saying, I'm willing to be excommunicated from my religious community because my conscience is so bothered by being as associated with it. It's, it's amazing what's happening. And so I think this is where we're seeing play out in Russia right now and in Ukraine right now, kind of hologram or microcosm or echo of things that have happened through religious history. And, and I think all that can happen is one person has the courage to say, I do not go along with this. I have to differ. I can't be quiet. And they're punished. But once the first person does, the second person says, I'm not the only one, and they get courage to speak up. And this is how change happens. It's costly, especially for the first one and the first 10 and the first 100 and the first 1,000. But, but at some point, it takes that kind of courage to differ to create the space for change. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Life is full of twists and turns, stress, changes, grief moments of growth, and moments where we feel like we're taking a few steps back. It's important to show up for yourself through all of the struggles that life can bring. BetterHelp Online Therapy is here for the twists and turns, and will assess your needs and can match you with your own licensed professional therapist in less than 48 hours. And for Spirituality and Health podcast listeners, get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com backslash spirituality health. Well, you are way more optimistic than I am. I mean, it seems like the one was Navalny and he's in jail. And then all the thousands and thousands of people Putin has arrested yes. for, you know, challenging this, this war. Yes. But the Orthodox world is splitting. I mean, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church is new, right? They were the Russian Orthodox Church. And then they said, yeah. nah. It, it, yeah. You know, it's like, it's the king saying to the Pope, you know, I want to get married and I want to, you know, change yeah. my, <laughs> my you know, marriage status and get divorced and remarry. And if you won't give me permission to do it, I'll just start my own, my own religion. Yeah. The, the Ukrainians basically said to the Russians, you know, we don't want to be part of you anymore. Yes. And 
that doesn't bode well for you know from the Russian Orthodox point of view. Yes. That, hey, get back in line. So they yeah. totally support what Putin is doing. Yes, and and maybe this is why I think to to the degree that any religion is fused with patriarchy. In other words, the, many religions have patriarchy, the, the rule of powerful men. They have that as their common operating system, <laughs> their common platform. And now as people are becoming suspicious of the, uh, of the ways that patriarchy goes ugly and vicious and violent and dangerous, it, it's, it's one of the things that's contributing to struggles of religious identity. And you might step back if you were sort of a, you know, a Martian or a, a extraterrestrial orbiting the earth and observing what's going on. You'd say, we're watching a global reappraisal of patriarchy that's going to cause radical change across religious traditions. A couple of years ago, I was at the Parliament of World Religions, and, you know, they show photographs of the first one back in the 1800s. And what was so striking is it was all old men with beards in the 1800s. And how much has changed in 100 years? I don't know. Not much. <laughs> <laughs> well, at I mean, least there was some change, I should right, say. There, yeah, there's there is still some. a long way to go. But. but because there's still a long way to go, going back to, to your book, Do I Stay Christian?, Jesus is still a threat, not, not yeah. the Christ that's owned by the patriarchy. But early on in your book, you sort of lay out this stark list of the differences between the Roman Empire and yeah. God's empire. And I mean, just to sort of refresh your memory, you say the Roman Empire was violent, given to world domination, a cruel of money and power in service to a hierarchy led by a single guy, patriarch. Whereas God's empire was nonviolent, given to service to others, liberation, generosity, love, concern for the least of these. And today we're in the same boat. I mean, it's, it's yeah. not the Roman Empire, it's yeah. the patriarchal empire, whatever you want to call it. But yeah. Jesus still represents, at, at least as, as you portray Jesus, Jesus still represents this radical who is willing yeah. to take up his cross and or you know, and 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 confront the powers that yeah. that are of of the patriarchy. So, how and and and, and I imagine the reason because I'm going to spoiler alert that you yeah. decide to stay Christian. But it seems to me the reason, or one of the reasons, you decide to stay Christian is the viability of the revolutionary Jesus yeah. in your life and the life of Christians, but also without conversion, the life of the world. How, how yes. accurate is that? That's, that's super accurate, Rami. And, and in fact, in, in this way, uh, you know, Jesus is playing the role of a Hebrew prophet. He's doing just what Micah and Hosea and, and Isaiah and others did in, in the sense that they said that they were looking at their people and saying, look how we're treating the widows, look how we're treating the orphans. And they were creating a vision of a day when we would all learn how to beat our swords into plowshares. So, so this kind of radical spiritual vision, there, it, it's a, a really important voice in all religious communities that, that I'm aware of. But there is also this contrary voice and this tension 
You might call it the tension between the priestly and the prophetic. There are a lot of different ways you could frame it, but it really is there. And I do not, you know, when I wrote this book, I, I was not writing it to try to convince people to stay Christian or to leave Christianity. I was, I'm writing it to help them think through in the best way that I, I was able to help. But one of the unintended consequences when people get sick of the kind of patriarchal and dominating and exclusionary forms of Christianity or Islam or Judaism or whatever, when people throw out the whole thing, they lose that prophetic, that prophetic right. treasure. And that's something we can't afford to lose right now. Oh, my goodness. In fact, it's really, we're seeing that same dynamic that, that got the prophets killed or thrown in prison. We're seeing it at play in Russia. We're seeing it in play here in the United States around the world. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24 through 26. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Yeah, that's the danger, is that I so closely associate Jesus with the Christ of the patriarchy that I just want to throw the whole thing out. Yes. You yeah. know, and so, you know, if, if I were Christian, do I stay Christian? The Christianity I know that I encounter all the time where I live, I, I would say, no, I don't want to be yes. have anything to do with that. But then yeah. you're right. What I lose is the original, I don't want, you could say the, the original spiritual revolution of Jesus. You could, whatever, however yeah. you want to put yeah. it. But you, yeah. you lose that prophetic that prophetic voice. So you said a little while ago, you live in Florida. So you're, you know, there with Governor DeSantis and a very conservative state that just passed the so-called don't say gay bill. And I know that's not yeah. what it says, but still. Yeah. I've been reading Timothy Snyder, who's a historian, writes about tyranny. He's got a phenomenal number of amazing books. I've been rereading a book called the Road to Unfreedom, where he yes. talks about the whole history of not just Russian Orthodoxy, but the whole messianic movement in Russia. We won't go yeah. into any of the details. But but the the one of the things that I got or I'm getting from this that, that he makes so clear is that for decades and decades and maybe a century or more, that the oppressive elements of Russian society, the fascistic elements of Russian society, use anti-gay rhetoric yes, uh, to bolster their standing among the people. And yes. you're there in Florida, and the same thing, this is my read of it, but you're, you're in the midst of the same thing, of sort of a of religious fascism employing homophobic language, you know, gay hatred, promoting yes. that, trans, you know, all of that stuff, and creating a devilish enemy that they're going to stand up and fight. Yeah. It's, it's all part of this thing that's been unfolding for, for century, let's say. How does, how, how do you, as your kind of Christian, speak out to that? How do you confront the powers of your state? Yes. In, in this, you know, 
unfolding of a fascistic kind of Christianity. Yeah. Well, one of the things that we've been trying to do in Florida is just get the voices, the, the, the religious voices who are not who are not of that ilk to speak up, identify ourselves, go public, and to let people know there's an alternative. That's that's one important step. And then comes another kind of difficult work that involves those of us who you might call more progressive religious voices, learning to reach out to more moderate religious voices and invite them to take a stand against people to their right. Because one of the ways that fascistic authoritarian regimes work is they make the people in the middle only be afraid of the, the people in the middle are always afraid of the people to the to the extreme on their side. And so the moderates are are they they just don't want to offend the people to their right. And so they they remain silent. And so one of the important things that we try to do is encourage encourage those moderate religious leaders to to try to speak up against the people to their right or to, to provide an alternative. And it's not easy. And we've not had great success in doing this. And I should tell you, Rami, that I, I don't want to violate any confidences here, but there are organizations that keep track of threats of election-related violence. And they've identified uh, 50, the top 50 counties that they are most worried about election-related violence later this year, but also in 2024. And I think the largest number of them are in Florida, 16 of those counties are identified in Florida. So there is, it's a, it's a very sinister and complicated system that involves sociology, it involves economics, it involves religion is a big part of it. But frankly, I think religion provides a lot of tools for other people who have primarily economic and ego-related motivations. Yeah, that's and that comes across, I think, very clearly in Do I Stay Christian? And I want to go there in just a second. But I wanted to ask you, you know, it's easy, I think, for me to demonize what I'm, you know, the fascists, you know, and I'm yeah. thinking them on the right, you know, on the right yeah. side of the, the extreme right side of the scale or the spectrum. But then there's also the what John McWhorter, I think that's his name, the calls the religion of wokeism. Yeah. And you're not saying that, it, it seems to me that Jesus is a third way, no pun intended, but obviously yeah. I, you know, I am drawing yeah. on that, a third way between the, the sometimes fascistic wokeism on the extreme left and the, the fascism on, on the extreme right. How do you navigate, how do you maintain a uniquely Christian voice that isn't simply um, painting a, a you know a, a, yeah. the face of Jesus over over liberalism. Yeah, yeah. So this is this is delicate and it's nuanced. And a nice thing about a podcast like this is we have the chance to try to deal with nuance that's not so easy on Twitter, for example. I think that what I might call the far left, which I'm in sympathetic with, uh, they're, they're, it's very rare that I find somebody saying something that I think is too far left in terms of policy. But there's a kind of rhetoric and a kind of rhetorical strategy that I think ends up being counterproductive, self-sabotaging, and ends up reinforcing fear on, 
on the right. And if it's fear and shame that make people susceptible to authoritarian leaders, in other words, they're so afraid and they're so shamed that whenever people use shame and fear as their primary motivation, they they don't realize it, but they're driving people into the arms of their opponent. And this is where, I know it's a bit of a cliche to say this, but this is where Dr. King really was such an extraordinary leader. He would say that we're trying to turn our enemies into friends. We're not trying to defeat and humiliate them. We're trying to turn them into friends. We're trying to win them over. And he he would try to communicate with people in that way. And I think this is one of the great challenges. So for example, I, I was involved in a really interesting initiative of a, of a pretty left-leaning organization over the last couple of years that has been trying to do outreach online. And their primary outreach is to people who agree with them, but who are being vicious. <laughs> and and they try to reach out to these people and say, here's a, here's a way to make this point that will not drive people away. Because what they're realizing is that it's it's their their vicious friends who are causing who are making it harder to win anybody over and and i should say this is why in in all the research and all the literature on left wing authoritarianism and right wing authoritarianism right wing authoritarianism ends up being more powerful because they actually do envision the humiliation and elimination of their opponents in a way that left-wingers usually don't. Now, there are exceptions. For example, if you want to consider the Pol Pot regime in Cambodia as a left-wing movement, well, yes, then they were happily happy to commit genocide of their own people in order to keep, you know, their their people in power. But but this desire, this realization that your opponents are still your neighbors and you have to get along with them and live with them is I just think that's a, a very realistic act unless you're willing to drive people out. And, and that leads to all kinds of horrors. Wow. I mean, that's really fascinating. It, it seems to me that when we're talking about, you know, whether it's Stalin or Pol Pot or Putin or, you know, whoever we're talking about, right, left no longer makes a difference. It, it's, it's almost a, a meaningless term. It's yes. just fascistic or, or yes. you know. This is why the term authoritarianism has been useful for me because I can, you can use the term as a left, as a left-wing phenomenon, as a right-wing right. phenomenon. And it's where, if I can be totally, I mean, I, I, I'm sad that I have to say this, but it's where there's something in the Christian religion that is, is super dangerous to put in people's hands. And that's this idea of heaven and hell. Because what heaven and hell do is they give people permission to imagine the torture and elimination of their opponents. Oh, yeah. And this is such a dangerous thing to put in any human being's hands or mind. And it's one of the things I think that is, I think it's, first of all, grossly misunderstood in the Bible but the way the Christian tradition has used that doctrine against its own people and against other people, it's just an, it's an idea that deserves deep scrutiny. And it's time for us to learn our lessons about where that doctrine leads. Hell yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's a really important observation. So we're going to run out of time soon, and I want to go back to the book. And in the book, Do I Stay Christian? I mean, you divide the book into three sections relating to, to the question itself, do I stay Christian? So section one deals with the answer. If, if your answer is no, then you talk about why the reasons are that you, you yeah. might not want to stay Christian. And then second section is yes, the, all the things that leads you to say, no, I do want to stay Christian. I want to take a look at the third category, how. Yes. And there are lots of things in there. And I'm just going to leave people hungry for most of them because I'm going to ask you to share one or two. Let them go and, you know, go buy the book. It's yeah. absolutely. Well, actually, is it out yet? I have an advance. It, it comes out. It comes out in May. Yeah, May 24th. It comes out in May. So perfect. Right after the resurrection, go get this book. <laughs> so tell us one or two ways that, that you suggest can, people can, you know, deal with the issue of how. Yes. How do I stay Christian? How do I remain Christian? Yeah, so that third part is actually, I, I, what I wanted to, what I said at the end of part two is that, look, some people are going to stay Christian and some people aren't. Whether or not you stay Christian, how are you going to live? And a person who has had some enough connection to the Christian faith that leaving makes them want to read a book, care about how they're going to live. They have some moral commitments and sense. So the, the third section is really written to, to ask the question, how are we going to be human? What kind of humans do we want to be? And, and how do we get to that place? And so the, the first chapter in that section is really a, a kind of echo of the previous book, Faith After Doubt, because part of what I try, I, I say to, I suggest to people is that we have to think in terms of our stages of development. And we have to realize that if you're moving beyond something, then you're also moving into something. And let's pay attention to what you're moving into. And this idea of include and transcend suggests that, you, that we say, I, if Christianity was my native language, I, I'm not going to be able to expunge it from my brain. I want to transcend its harmful elements. And and whatever is good, I want to try to include. And that will be true of a person, whether they, they identify as Christian or not. So that was one of the strategies. I'll, another one that was kind of close to my heart is there's a chapter called Rewild. And I think one of the struggles, one of the dimensions of any religion is that it becomes a language. It becomes a, a set of terms and a set of arguments and and when people are trying to recover some sort of spirituality, very often all the old language gets in the way. And so I think this becomes a, a point in time when all of us could learn a lot by just reconnecting with the natural world and trying to discern the kind of wisdom that's baked into the natural world. And, and what's so powerful about that wisdom is it doesn't come to us in words. It comes to us on some primal, pre-language, pre-verbal way. The, the act of watching the tide come in and go out again and again, the act of watching the seasons come and go, the, the, the cycles of death and, 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 and recycling and resurgence of life, all of those rhythms, I think, become really important to us in trying to construct a a spirituality when much of the religious language we inherited has become deeply, deeply problematized, including even the word God. 
You know, that would, would be a perfect place to end, but I'm going to ask you for one more thing. <laughs> I'm going to sort of break the fourth wall here yes, and let our listeners know that while we're recording this, our producer, Ezra Baker Trupiano, is feeding his brand new baby daughter. Yes. So what I'd like, and I'm really putting you on the spot, Brian, what can you say to her? <laughs> mm. So let me say two things, Rami. One is, if we could put a little time capsule in for this precious little life, and I don't know anything about her religious upbringing or whatever else, but who, who everyone born is born into a family. And that family brings a heritage. And even if it's a heritage of secularism, that's a heritage with a, a noble history and embarrassments. And so part of what I, I would want to give that I hope us, all of us who are parents and grandparents can give to children is this awareness that their heritage is a blessing and it's a burden, that, that it, it's something that gives us strength and something eventually we'll learn to push against and critique, to think critically about. We'll celebrate it and critique it. And, and I guess part of what I want to say is that is part of what it means to come of age. That's part of what it means to be a human being, to, to, to sort through your heritage in that way. And then I guess maybe by way of a blessing, what I would wish is that by the time this precious little girl is 18 or 20 or 25 years old and she's coming of age as an adult, I would hope we'll be at a place where, uh, well, I'm thinking about the theme of this podcast of spirituality and health, that it will be common knowledge that there's ways that religion and spirituality can be harmful, but they are also ways that spirituality can contribute to health. And what my hope and dream will be for her and for my own grandchildren is that they will live in a world where all of us will do what you and I are doing, will bring whatever treasures and wisdom we've gained from our tradition, including by critiquing it, and we'll want to share those with each other because we need, we need all, all the help we can get going forward. Oh, that, that was beautiful. Our guest today, Brian McLaren, is the author of Do I Stay Christian? A Guide for the Doubters, the Disappointed, and the Disillusioned. You can learn more about his work on his website, brianmclaren.net. Brian, thank you so much for talking with us again on the Spirituality Health Podcast. I always look forward to it. And once again, it's been a delight. You've been listening to the Spirituality and Health Podcast. If you like this episode, please rate and review us in your favorite podcast app. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share us on social media and tag us at Spirit Health Mag. You can also follow me on the Spirituality and Health website, where I write a regular column called Roadside Musings. Don't forget to subscribe to the print magazine as well. The Spirituality and Health Podcast is produced by Ezra Baker Truppiano, and our executive producer is Mallory Corbin. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Life is full of twists and turns, stress, changes, grief, moments of growth, 
and moments where we feel like we're taking a few steps back. It's important to show up for yourself through all of the struggles that life can bring. BetterHelp Online Therapy is here for the twists and turns and will assess your needs and can match you with your own licensed professional therapist in less than 48 hours. And for spirituality and health podcast listeners, get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com backslash spirituality health. Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Farber, and I'm an author, teacher, psychotherapist, and shamanic practitioner. On my podcast, Healing for Your Soul, I welcome some amazing guests and introduce you to some healing techniques like earth magic, working with nature and animals, and really getting to the heart of what is keeping you stuck. I want to help you deepen your spirituality and let go of blocks that are holding you back. Let me help you in this journey called life. Part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode.